Good morning, I'm Barb Boylan, and our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, and chapter 6, verse 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reasons to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be with you as always. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here and welcome uh, to Disciples Church. We are so glad as always to see you and glad to have you with us. Uh, If you're not there already in your Bibles, please turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. You'll notice that the majority of our text is in chapter 6, but we're going to pick up right on that last verse of chapter 5. And today, uh, if you've been with us in this series in the book of Galatians, we've been kind of marching through this book and seeing the way that the Apostle Paul describes the freedom that belongs to the Christian, that belongs to you and me, freedom granted by the Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, And it's a freedom that that delivers us from all of the burden of the law, all of the burden of our own sin, from the penalty of our own sin, certainly, but also from the domination of sin that that we have experienced in our lives. And and as we come into this home stretch of the book of Galatians, coming into the final uh, chapter, finally, Paul is going to begin to answer the implicit question. The implicit question of this text then is this, in the words of one commentator, what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? If everything that needed to be done for you was accomplished through Jesus Christ already, if all of the work has been completed by him, if there's nothing remaining for those who know Jesus Christ, there's nothing remaining for you to, or nothing remaining for you to do in order to earn your own salvation, in order to earn your own standing in the sight of God. If all of that has been granted perfectly and wonderfully by Jesus Christ, now what are you going to do since you don't have to do anything? See, we operate in the Christian life out of this position of freedom, but our tendency is always to go back to obligation. It's always to go back to duty, and ultimately, obligation and duty separated from the love of Jesus Christ and from the understanding of our freedom leads us right back into slavery. A slavery of a different form, certainly, but slavery nonetheless. And so Paul, throughout this book, has been, has been pleading with us, 2,000 years removed, not to run back to the slavery of the law. Don't go back to your former master. Don't go back to the obligations that I've freed you from. Enjoy the freedom you've been given. And in that freedom, now that you have everything that you need for the Christian life, and now that everything has been accomplished for you, now you are free to do what this text calls us to do. And all of this instruction that we're given, especially as we come into chapter six this morning, is set against the backdrop of a church body that had fallen into disrepair. This church that that Paul is writing to that began so beautifully and so wonderfully and so miraculously through the gospel of Jesus Christ has begun to splinter and divide. 
People have abandoned the gospel. The Judaizers had come in proclaiming the Old Testament law, the observance of the law as a means of salvation and as a means of maintaining one's salvation. And all of this, particularly the legalism introduced by the Judaizers, was rooted in spiritual arrogance and self-reliance. It's the exact opposite of the gospel message. And what it did is it led those who began to buy into the law to begin to feel superior into their lives, uh, in their lives to those who were clinging to Jesus alone. It created this sense of division and this sense of conflict within the body of the church in Galatia. And so after contrasting at the end of chapter 5, the works of the flesh with life in the spirit, Paul now pleads with the church to use their freedom Use your freedom as a means to care for one another. And we'll pick it up in verse 26 of chapter 5. He begins with this admonition. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. He starts with this admonition, and this is the reason we begin here as opposed to verse 1 of chapter 6, because Paul is going to say everything he's about to say in chapter 6 in light of chapter 5, verse 26. What he says is that we all, are, are all by nature, are creatures of comparison. From our earliest age, from the time kids are little on the playground, they begin comparing. Who can run the farthest and run the fastest and jump the highest and do the best? We compare where we come from and what we have and what we're able to do. We see it in athletic competitions. We see it in the educational environment. We see it in socioeconomic status. Comparisons are rampant. It's one of the most natural things that people do. And as we've talked about at length throughout this series, one of the things we discussed is that in our desire to justify ourselves, to justify our existence, our value, our worth, our meaning, we look to the things that we're able to do, to the places from which we've come, and to the skill sets that we have to justify our value. And Paul says the very same thing happens in our spiritual life. We naturally, all of us, even as believers, compare our giftedness. We compare our knowledge. We compare our ability to discipline ourselves. We compare our own perceived morality against that of others. And it's one of the things that Paul is frequently writing to the churches about. He addresses it here in this text. He addresses it in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. You find all of these divisions that rise up in the church as soon as Christians begin to compare themselves to one another instead of following the Spirit as was instructed in chapter 5. And the reason we do that is because if I can find a point at which I feel superior to you, it works to validate my own self-worth and it allows me to dismiss you. It allows me to dismiss the things that I don't like about you. It allows me to stand in my own, uh, in my own self-perception as being above you. And likewise, and this is the downside, the other downside of comparison, if I compare myself to someone else and find myself lacking, if I see in somebody else a moral superiority, an ability to live a better life, a true goodness of heart, if I begin to compare myself to someone who, who appears better, it leaves me lacking. It leads, as Paul warns, to envy and discontentment. And here's the point of verse 26. Comparison in the spiritual life always leads to ruin. Always. It either leads you to feelings of conceit and arrogance for the ways in which you feel superior to others, or it leads you to to feelings of inadequacy and jealousy for the ways in which others seem superior. 
Have you ever noticed that there is no example in Scripture in which spiritual comparison is presented favorably? We are never called to compare ourselves to others positively or negatively, and in fact, the times in which spiritual comparisons are made between people in Scriptures, it is exclusively used to show you the inadequacy of such a pursuit. So for example, think of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. He's presenting this sermon to all the people that have gathered, and here's what he says in chapter 5, verse 20 of the book of Matthew. For I tell you, listener, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now who is viewed favorably in that spiritual comparison? Is it the scribes and the Pharisees for all of their religious observance and all of their faithfulness and all of their ability to obey the law in their own accord? Well, no, because implicitly what Jesus has just said is their righteousness will not get them into heaven. So then is it the average Joe who doesn't do those religious things? Well, no, because Jesus just said that you have to have a righteousness that is superior to the Pharisees in order to receive heaven. And implicit in that teaching, Jesus is saying, don't bother comparing yourselves negatively or positively to anybody else because it's a fool's errand and it's folly. It leads to either conceit or depression. And instead, the alternative that we're given in Matthew chapter 5 and throughout the New Testament is to view the righteousness that we most desperately need as being provided by Christ alone. See, the truth of the matter is we are all in this room individuals. We are unique, we are different, we're all working through different struggles and temptations, we're all experiencing to varying degrees of of success, different progress and victories, and when you engage in spiritual comparison, the only thing you're doing is setting yourself up for either delusion or disappointment. Those are the only two possible outcomes. See, other people cannot be the standard by which you judge the spiritual success of your life. We need a different standard by which to measure our growth. And Paul is going to explain what that standard is in verse 4. But first, notice Paul's instruction in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, and he's speaking to them in this moment from this, from this familial, compassionate, pastoral perspective. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And this instruction is profound. Paul here is laying out the response that individuals within the church ought to have when somebody from within the body experiences spiritual failure. And notice first that his response is not a punitive one. See, naturally, our inclination when someone fails is to lay down guilt and punishment. It's to try to assign some sort of punishment for their behavior. But he doesn't say here when someone falls, make sure they feel really terrible for their failure so they don't do it again. Nor does he say when someone fails, show them the door because the church isn't the right place for someone who fails. No, he doesn't say any of that. What he says is, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In other words, the goal of mutual accountability within the church is always restoration. Always. 
And you find it not only this text, but you find it as well in the book of 1 Timothy in Matthew chapter 18. What Paul is saying here is that the only response, or is that not only ought the response of the church be one of restoration, in other words, bringing back into proper fellowship the relationships that may have been broken or damaged, but also that that restoration ought to be done gently. Do you remember as we talked about the fruit of the Spirit last week, that gentleness was listed among those fruit. That gentleness is one of the signs of spiritual life and vitality. And just as much as that's true individually, it is also true corporately. It's true when the people of God gather that gentleness ought to be a mark of the Spirit's movement within the, within the context of the church. So when Paul says here, you who are spiritual, he's not saying those of you who have some extra spiritual gift or those of you who've had some sort of out-of-body experience. No, what he's saying is those among you who are spiritually vital, those among you who are spiritually mature, it is your responsibility to bring reconciliation and gentle restoration to that ailing brother or sister. Do you notice, by the way, that this responsibility is not just given to those within the context of church leadership, it is given to the church. It is given, if you are here today and a believer, it is given to you. That part of the exercise of your Christian freedom, of understanding the grace and the forgiveness that we've been given is then to turn and extend that grace and forgiveness to others. And you'll see as well that restoration requires both grace and truth. Grace and truth are are two sides of the same gospel coin. And that instruction is necessary because spiritually immature people don't do this. Spiritually immature people don't do one of two things when they discover a brother or sister that is sinning. Either they do nothing, which is a lack of truth, It's too awkward, it's too messy, it's too uncomfortable. I don't want to make them feel awkward. I don't want to feel awkward. I don't like talking to people. I don't like confrontation. I wouldn't want somebody else to talk to me if I was struggling. So let's just pretend that none of this happened. And it's not loving because it doesn't care about the truth. How can I love you if I allow you and even assist you in continuing on in falsehood. There's nothing loving about that. Love requires truth. Or, just as often, what spiritually immature people do is they judge, which is a lack of grace. And it comes across in all kinds of different ways. Well, I would not want anything to do with someone who would do something so heinous. Or, I'm so glad that I'm not like that person. But what separates the spiritually mature individual from the spiritually immature person is that, they, is that spiritually mature people are not surprised when brothers or sisters fall into sin. Nor are they scared of interacting. So often within the context of the church, people are shocked when other redeemed sinners sin. And that shock leads to a fear of interaction, a fear of conversing, a fear of coming along and caring. But spiritually mature people 
according to Paul's instruction here, are not surprised by failure because they remember and they recognize that their own maturity is dependent on the Spirit and not their own ability. They remember that they were redeemed. They remember that they have failed countless times. But the church has a tendency to function more like a club sometimes than a church. We're either so intent on keeping up appearances that no one is allowed to admit their struggles or we're so scared of gaining a bad reputation that when someone sins, they become an outcast. But do you remember the instruction and the admonition of Romans chapter 7, verse 16? You'll remember this is the text where Paul says, where Paul says, the things that I want to do are the things that I'm not doing, and the things that I'm not supposed to do are the things that I keep doing. And in that same text, as you come to verse 16, he says this, now if I do what I do not want, in other words, if I sin, I am admitting that I really do agree with the law. In other words, I understand and agree that what the law says about my own brokenness, but he then says this in verse 17, so now, now that I'm in Christ, it is no longer I who sin, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when, when redeemed people, when brothers and sisters, when Christians sin, you are having an identity crisis. In the words of one commentator, you are, you are experiencing spiritual amnesia. You have forgotten in that moment who you are and you need to be reminded. It's why the church should never respond to the fallenness of a brother or sister with contempt or with scorn or with dismissal or with dismay, but with understanding and compassion and restoration. Because when you fail spiritually, when, not if, when you fail spiritually, the last thing you need is a lecture and a guilt trip. What you need is a reminder of who you are in Christ. What I need is someone to come along and say, brother, sister, let me remind you that your sin, your failure doesn't define you. Your sonship or your daughterhood defines you. You're not some outcast who needs to earn his way back into acceptance. You are a member of the family already. You're a priest of God. You're a royal child of the Most High King. And the way you've been living isn't worthy of the position you've been given. Don't settle. That's the conversation that spiritually mature people have because their own experience of the grace and love of Jesus Christ has led them to humility and gentleness. But spiritually immature people don't want to restore fallen brothers and sisters. They just as soon see them thrown out and abandoned. And if they are okay with a brother being restored, they definitely don't want to do it gently. They want to see that individual grovel and beg and prove their sincerity before extending restoration. See, what's so surreptitious about spiritual immaturity is that it is always done in the name of protecting the church and protecting the name of God. But let's be clear, God doesn't need you to protect his name. He can do that all on his own. What he's asking you to do is to be an instrument of his redeeming grace and his restoring love. And if God was primarily interested in his reputation among the spiritually immature, Jesus would have cared far more about the opinion of the Pharisees and avoided the sinful at all costs. 
But instead, Jesus called out the Pharisees and was known as the friend of sinners. And that's why Paul says that you who are spiritual, you who have met Jesus, you who have experienced restoration yourself, you need to imitate Jesus in restoring a person who's fallen. You who understand grace, step up and extend it. You who realize how richly God has set his love on you and how little you deserved it, reach out. And in doing so, you not only remind and restore the fallen one in their rightful place of privilege as a child of God in the church of God, but you also stand as a hedge, a buttress, a shield against the gossips and the backbiters and the resentful blue noses who are more concerned with the appearance of health than with the reality of life. And the irony is that the self-righteous and the spiritually immature end up erecting a standard to which God himself does not subscribe. So instead, let us follow the example of Martin Luther, who when advising a pastor friend on how to care for our fallen brother said these words, run unto him. And reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. And as a warning to those who might be tempted to step in with something less than gentleness, Paul advises us further in verse 1. He says to you and to us, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, don't always busy yourself with what's going on in somebody else's life. Don't be overly concerned in a way that God hasn't asked you to be. Though certainly we want to care for the fallen individual. We're not trying to take away from that aspect at all. But what he says here is, keep watch on yourself. Watch your own steps lest you be tempted. See, when you, when you see a brother fall, keep away from a conceited, harsh, dismissive attitude, understanding that all of us have been recipients of God's mercy and grace, and all of us are susceptible to sin and failure. In a very real way, the spiritually mature person ought to be able to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. In other words, the only reason that we haven't sinned worse than we already have is because God has kept us from doing so. In his grace and in his mercy, we are not all as terrible as we could be all of the time. See, the truth is that while our temptations may be different from somebody else's, we are all capable of incredible wickedness. And if you find yourself seeing someone else's failures and derisively saying, well, I'd never do that, be careful and watch your heart. Instead, says Paul, here's the alternative, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So Paul says, not only ought you to gently restore a brother or sister who's fallen, but you need to go even further. Work to bear one another's burdens. When you see a brother or sister struggling under the weight of life, come alongside and put your shoulder under the load. See, God has not intended anyone to carry the pain and the difficulty of life alone. He has provided emissaries and spiritual medics to care for you. And likewise, he has placed you where you are with the experiences you've had and the personality that you've been given to meet the needs and care for the hurting around you.
you are not where you are on accident. He has providentially placed you. He has wired you and built you and constructed you. He's given you your unique experiences for his divine purposes, which means that the call to bear one another's burdens and to care for and love the hurting does not just belong to the compassionate extrovert. And it doesn't just belong to people who know how to nurse and care. It belongs to everybody who has the Spirit of God indwelling them. Now, there's probably a host of reasons why Christians sometimes fail to bear the burdens of others, but certainly one of the reasons is that we tend to make this more complicated than it really is. We tend to think, well, I don't have any training or experience in caring for hurting people, so what do I have to offer? Or we presume that someone else will come along and offer assistance who's better equipped but the only prerequisite to offering care and bearing the burden of a brother is to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you know Christ, you have the Spirit. So here's how easily this can play out. And we could give examples all morning, but I'll just give three particular ministries in which you can participate. The first is the ministry of prayer. Now, certainly that includes praying for brothers and sisters in your own time with God, but the reality is that there is an incredible power in you actually praying with a person in the moment of their need. I never cease to be amazed at how many believers I've had opportunity to pray with who, upon hearing that prayer, have stopped and said, you know, I've never actually heard anybody pray for me before. It's a fairly common thing and I can't tell you how many times I've had the privilege of praying, a uh, privilege of saying to somebody, you know, would you mind if I just prayed with you about this really quickly? And in all the times I've said that, I think I've had one person who said no. And once they left, I prayed for them anyway, because they still needed it, right? There is something about taking the time to pray with someone that is incredibly powerful. It's a tangible demonstration of your care and your concern. And more than that, it is an appeal in the presence of a witness to the power of God to intervene in the life of a brother or sister. It is simple, it is approachable, and it's something anyone can do. The second is the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence. There are going to be all sorts of times where you are tempted to offer comfort or insight or counsel in moments where you'd be better served to just be quiet and sit with people. Particularly if you're someone like me who doesn't like silence naturally. You don't like a lull in the conversation and so the tendency is to keep talking and to keep talking when really you should shut up. And there's a power when someone's hurting and when someone's experiencing heartache, there's a power in being with them and showing concern and putting an arm around them or giving them a hug or crying with them. There is something reassuring about the presence of fellow believers. It's really the example that you see in the story of Job. Where Job has just experienced the most brutal thing that anybody could imagine. He's lost his whole family, all of his belongings, everything that meant anything to him is gone almost instantaneously. And if you remember that story, there's all of these moments where Job is just sitting, he's crying, weeping, gnashing his teeth, 
and his friends are just sitting with him, loving him. And they only get into trouble when they begin to open their mouths and say things. Because when they speak, they give him really, really bad advice. So what does it look like for you to come along someone who's hurting, and even if you don't know what to say, or can't think of something to say, or don't have sage wisdom to offer, where you can just be with them? Why? Because God has placed you there for that. He's given you that moment. He's given you that opportunity for his own purposes. And the last one, I couldn't think of a good name, but we have prayer, we have presence, and I wanted to keep it alliterated. So the last one is the ministry of persistence. And here's what I mean when I say that. It is natural to reach out to someone when something earth-shattering has just happened, when they've just experienced something traumatic. But I've talked to enough people, and I've been in my own experience now, to, to have lost a parent, or others who've lost a child or a spouse, to know that about three to four months after someone has lost a loved one, the phone tends to stop ringing, and text messages tend to stop coming through, and people tend to stop checking in. And so when those phone calls or those text messages do come through three months, six months, nine months, a year after the fact, there's a tangible expression of the love of Christ coming through a brother or sister. So what does it look like for you just to set a reminder on your phone to pray and to check in regularly? Those things carry more weight than we can possibly imagine. They convey more compassion and more care than we could ever dream. See, the truth is there are a myriad of ways to bear one another's burden, but the motivation here to do so is to fulfill the law of Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul here is not establishing a whole new law. He's just spent five chapters talking about that, but rather what he's doing is he's referencing back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, which Dave preached on a few weeks ago, where Paul quotes the words of Jesus in saying, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, The call of being a believer, in part, is to extend the love and the heart of Christ in care for the hurting. To bear the burdens of the one who's fallen, to bear the burdens of the one who's struggling, to bear the burdens of the one who's hurting. And he continues this idea in verse 3 with another admonition. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Paul says, "What, what keeps people from carrying the burden of your brother? It's when you begin to think that that work is beneath you. When you begin to think that people should just shape up and pull it together and do better. See, if you think you're really something, not only are you not going to bear someone else's burdens, but you're probably not going to even notice them. But when we understand our own pitiable state, when we realize our own need and our own desperation for the intervention of a savior, then we can't help but to become aware of the needs of others. We're given a heart of compassion because we have experienced the heart of compassion. And in a desire to emulate Christ, we begin to look to intervene. So what Paul is saying here is don't lie to yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't, don't lie to yourself by thinking that, your, that self-dependence is a virtue. That your lack of emotion or lack of care is something to be emulated. 
Instead, recognize your own spiritual weakness, your own dependence on Christ, your own need for the care of the Spirit in your life, and, and, and recognize the link to which Christ has gone to meet you in the middle of it, and then imitate that work in carrying the burden of others. And then he says this in verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And in this verse, Paul is really giving us the alternative to comparing ourselves against others. If comparing ourselves to others leads inevitably to delusion or disappointment, then what are we, what are we to use to measure our own spiritual maturity? How do I know I'm growing? And here is Paul's answer. Test your own work. In other words, in the, in the words of one commentator, look at your own opportunities and your responses to them. So are you making good use of the skills and the gifts and the circumstances to which God has entrusted? When God puts opportunities in your paths and he gives you the personality that he's given you and the experiences that you've gone through and the heart that you have and the way that your mind works and your ability to communicate, however that ability to communicate comes through, are you using those things to actually meet people in their needs, to actually respond to the Holy Spirit in your life, to do the work that God has called you to do in a faithful way? Are you taking advantage of the tools that he's provided as a means for your own growth? Are you taking advantage of the opportunities that he's given you to serve? Are you in a position to recognize the burdens of others and in seeing those burdens to come alongside to help bear them? Verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, at first glance, that seems paradoxical to what Paul just said in verse 2, which is to bear one another's burdens. So why is he here saying each one has to bear his own load? Which one is it? Well, the truth of the, the reality of what Paul is saying here is, is actually found in the translation of the word load because there's two different words that are being used in verse 2 and in verse 5. In verse 2, when Paul says that we're to bear the burden of one another, the word that's translated there, burden, is the idea of a heavy weight. It's the idea of trying to pull or carry something that is beyond your ability to carry or pull by yourself. It's a burden so large that you are in the process of being crushed underneath its weight. And in those situations, says Paul, you need others to come alongside and bear that burden with you. And likewise, when you see someone in that situation, you need to come alongside and help bear that burden. And in verse 5, the word that is translated load quite literally could be translated as backpack. Something that you might carry with you every day as a matter of course. In other words, what he's saying is that God has given each of us unique gifts and opportunities for which we are responsible. Think of it this way. It's like the way that you might act with, interact with children in your home. I mean, you might have one child for whom school comes very easy. Right? They show up in class and they listen to the teacher and they take the tests and they do the homework and they get it all done and it all comes easy and they don't have to really work at it. It seems as, just, as if just everything comes naturally to them. And, and because of that, when their report com card comes through, they have A's and they have high marks from their teacher and everything looks great. And you might have another child for whom school is incredibly difficult where they have to work for every little bit of what they get. 
and they study and they work and they study and they work and they do everything that they can. And when the report card comes through, you're happy to see a C plus. See, what matters to the parent in that moment is not the specific grade that a child gets, but rather the way that a child is properly stewarding their resources and skill sets to fulfill their responsibilities. And in a similar way, that's what Paul is explaining here. He's saying when you see someone else with this heavy burden, come along and help them lift it. But in the meanwhile, remember that God has given you your own responsibilities manageable tasks through the power of the Spirit, opportunities and skill sets and giftings into which God has called you and you alone, that he's put you in places to intervene and to care and to love and to proclaim the goodness of the gospel that nobody else has. So don't squander those opportunities, whether you're the A student or the C student, work hard with what God has given you and use them to his glory. And when we begin to think of it this way, the temptation for comparison is removed. Why? Because the mark of your spiritual maturity is not someone else's life. Your life is not measured up against the person who wakes up at three in the morning and is on their knees for two hours praying and spends an hour and a half in the Word and then goes about proclaiming the gospel at a coffee shop for the rest of the day. That may not be what God has called you to. But he has given you your responsibilities, your opportunities, your skill sets, where he's placed you for a reason. Within the confines of your own home, in the family with which you interact, in your neighborhood, and communicating with coworkers, whatever it might be, he's given you those opportunities. So be faithful with this. So the question then is, brother and sister, are you using whatever skills God has given you for his ends? Are you aware of the opportunities that are all around you? Are are you looking to bear the burdens of ailing brothers and sisters? Or are you content with the deceit of comparison? Are you content to be slightly better in your own estimation than whomever it is you're comparing yourself against? Or, just as commonly, if not more, are you resigned to disappointment? Resigned to disappointment at your perceived lack of ability, at your perceived lack of progress, because by comparison you feel you don't measure up. The invitation of this text in this morning is to let the Holy Spirit who indwells you lead you. As we talked about in verse 5, to walk in step with the Spirit. Not in step with what the person next to you is doing or the person down the street or the person across the aisle, but in step with what the Holy Spirit is leading you individually to do. Even when he leads you into what might be unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Receive the invitation to be content with what he's given you and where he's brought you and where he's taking you to, knowing that you are fully equipped for every good work through the Holy Spirit to which God might actually call you. Walk and step with the Spirit that you might faithfully observe and do that which he's called you to do.
Let's pray together. God, we thank you for a text that is so practical in its application. And yet, God, we thank you that even in the practicality and the invitation of this text, you have not given us a demand or a call without empowering the ability to do it. God, that the work is already done, all of it. You've given us everything we need. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need to live the Christian life out. Your Holy Spirit indwells us. We are redeemed and accepted and beloved, perfectly righteous in your eyes because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so now that everything has been done already, what is it we're going to do? Because now we're free to serve. We're free even to be looked down on. Because what matters to us or what ought matter to us is not the perception of those around us, but the perception that you have of us, a perception that is already set because of our perfect acceptance in Christ. So then, God, help us to be responsive to what it is you call us to do. Help us to be willing to walk where you'd have us walk, to say what you'd have us to say, to be quiet when you'd have us to be quiet, to love those around us as the church that you've called together for yourself, part of the church universal throughout all time and all places, those who know Jesus Christ and the church local a body of believers here in this place. So help us to find our place and to be faithful to respond to whatever it is the Holy Spirit leads us to in our lives. And we'll give you all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. Amen.